So uh, I'm Philippa Hetherington. I'm going to be chairing this um, session, and I'm a lecturer in modern Eurasian history at uh, University College London at the School of Sponic and East European Studies just down the road. And I want to apologize that I haven't been to some of the earlier panels. I really wanted to come to um, the vast majority of the program or as much as I could, and then we're in the middle of exam season at the moment, and I'm like drowning under a pile of exam scripts. So I, I would have been here much more if it weren't for that. So um, uh, I'm going to launch straight in, and I'm gonna introduce um, all of the panelists first, and then we'll go straight into their talks um, and we will have uh, then um, about 45 minutes for um, a discussion afterwards, finishing sharply at uh, three in time for the next um, panel. So um, our panel this afternoon is the Languages of International Feminism. Um, and we have um, three distinguished speakers. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. The first speaker is Jocelyn Olcott, um, Olcott sorry, who is Associate Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies at Duke University. Her first book looked at revolutionary women in post-revolutionary Mexico, and her second book, which I believe is not only about to come out, but in fact, Jocelyn was saying uh, she had a call from her editor, and her editor has seen a physical, uh, um, <laughs> a physical book last night. <laughs> So, so on the very verge of coming out, um, which is entitled International Women's Year, the Greatest Consciousness Raising Event in History. And the latter book considers the history and legacies of the United Nations First World Conference on Women in 1975 in Mexico City. Our next speaker will be Christine Varga-Harris, uh, who is Associate Professor of History at Illinois State University. Her first book was published by Cornell University Press in 2015 and is entitled Stories of House and Home, Soviet Apartment Life During the Khrushchev Years. Her current research, which is what we'll be hearing about uh, today, looks at gender and Soviet cultural relations with non-aligned countries during the 1950s and 1960s. And then our final speaker today will be Emma London, um, who got her PhD from Birkbeck in 2016. And her thesis was entitled Practical Solidarity, Connections Between Women in the Swedish Social Democratic Party and the ANC, 1960 to 1995. She's currently teaching at Queen Mary University and starting a new project on the global history of the UN Women's Conferences. So without further ado, I'll pass on to Jocelyn Orcott for the first uh, talk, which is Lost in Translation, International Women's Year and the Languages of Transnational Feminisms. Great, thank you. Um, and I want to thank uh, Bridget and Siobhan and Jessica and all of the reluctant internationalists. I'm just very sad that only to get involved with this as for the last conference because this is an incredibly cool project. But um, okay, so last in translation. Attending an international, an, an official dinner celebrating the 1975 UN International Women's Year Conference in Mexico City. U.S. feminist Betty Friedan sidled among reflecting pools and Olmec sculptures at the National Anthropology Museum in hopes of befriending delegates from the People's Republic of China. In her breathtakingly solipsistic account of the conference, titled Scary Doings in Mexico City, Friedan describes what she read as the PRC women's conspicuous indicators of oppression. Um, and I should say, all of these photographs are from a feminist uh, photographer named Betty Lane, who did a lot of photography of the women's liberation and gay liberation movements in the United States. Uh, there is a whole other conversation we can have about translation of visual images, which uh, are, I think, 
interesting in all of these, as you'll see. But so for Dan, sees these women and, and, and reading what she sees as indicators of oppression, they wore, quote, blue uniforms and no makeup. And the head of the delegation had a square cut black hair. She recounts trying to speak to them through an interpreter, declaiming the accomplishments of the US feminist movement. And suddenly, the Chinese ambassador barked out something that sounded authoritative, and the women withdrew from the conversation. Undaunted by either the obvious language barriers or the ambassador who, quote, like a blocking, blocking tackle in a football game, tried to prevent further contact, Ferdan persisted. She was a woman, Ferdan explained. I didn't accept the impossibility of talking to her. Maybe if I could sit next to her, some woman-to-woman -woman things would get across. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in a narrative that tacked between outright, outright paranoia and a James Bond-style thriller, Ferdinand recalled, quote, despite every effort to keep women divided, including violent disruptions played up by the media, we women united in Mexico City. Women from the Third World, Latin Americans, Africans and Turbans, Indians and, Indians and Saris, anti-fascists from Greece, feminists from Japan, Australia, and Mexico, and women who didn't want to be called feminists from Nigeria and Ecuador, as well as Americans, black, brown, and white, to insist that women's equality couldn't wait on a new economic order. Ferdinand imagined the 1975 International Women's Year Conference, or IWY as it was known, as a gathering in which, as, this, as if through osmosis, women-to-woman -woman things would cross seemingly countless literal and metaphorical barriers of translation. My talk today draws on a book that I mentioned just out, just now, <laughs> so excited, uh, on a book about the IWY conference. I'll start with the brief conversation of the, the mood of the UN in the mid-70s and of the conference itself, and then go on to explore some of the ways in which the cacophony and polyvocality of IWI fostered what I've come to think of following Jacques Rancière as dissensus feminism. Paul Ferdinand and her supporters imagined that IWI had succeeded only in the moments it achieved unity. Time has shown that IWI's most enduring legacies grew out of moments of generative friction and even open conflict. As many of you know, the mid-1970s were a tumultuous time at the United Nations. The cresting wave of decolonization had resulted in a mushrooming of UN membership and the non-aligned movement's UN bloc, the Group of 77, or the G77 as it was called, firmly controlled the UN General Assembly as well as important entities such as UNESCO. By late 1974, just as discussions were underway about where to hold the IWI conference and how to fund it, the General Assembly suspended South Africa because of its apartheid policies, and UNESCO suspended funding for Israel, citing its archaeological practices. Israel, as most of you probably know, was excluded from other the sort of uh, negotiating blocks or regional blocks in the United Nations, and until 2013, kind of awkwardly uh, caucused with the with the um, Western European and others group until it, it officially in 2013 became part of that group. Uh, the IWI conference itself played a critical role in G77 efforts to expel Israel from the General Assembly altogether. The US State Department grew increasingly anxious about Soviet efforts to curry favor among non-aligned nations and frustrated with what its diplomats, diplomats deemed log rolling between Arab and African nations. In this atmosphere, under pressure from the Commission on the Status of Women, the United Nations voted to designate 1975 as International Women's Year and to organize although not really to fund a thematic conference that would take place in Mexico City in late June of that year. Inauguration. Um, the conference actually consisted principally of two major gatherings, an official conference of instructed delegations from the member states, which met in Mexico City's 
uh, Mexico's Ministry of Foreign Relations, and a less formal gathering of non-governmental organizations or NGOs about five kilometers to the south in the modernist medical center complex. The NGO Tribune reflected the growing power of civil society in the 1970s. Indeed, in an era of proliferating UN theme conferences, IWI was among the very first to have a parallel NGO Tribune. The scale and tenor of the NGO Tribune were a function of both geopolitics and historical contingencies. The idea for IWI as a thematic theme year had originally been proposed by the Soviet-aligned NGO, the Women's International Democratic Federation, to coincide with the 35th anniversary of its founding and its quinquennial World Congress of Women in East Berlin. The US delegation to the Commission on Status of Women proposed the IWI conference, originally in Bogota and later relocated to Mexico City, explicitly in an effort to displace the East Berlin conference as the hallmark IWI event. The NGO Tribune ended up being organized by a New York City-based team of women who held leadership roles in consultative status NGOs, organizations such as the World YWCA, the International Business and Professional Women's Federation, and the Universal Esperanto Association <laughs> that worked closely with the UN's Economic and Social Council and had strong investments in the hierarchical parliamentarian protocols of the UN itself. Still giddy from a triumph of the 1974 UN Population Conference in Bucharest, the organizing committee turned its attention to IWI planning with a clear conviction that their challenge would be to get the UN to take women's issues seriously, that they needed to prevent what they called politics from eclipsing women's issues. They hewed to the liberal assumption that with a shared language and enough shared information, all participants would agree on where the dividing line between the two ran. However, the NGO Tribune's principal organizer, Mildred Persinger, there's like seven Mildreds in the story, which I think tells you a lot about <laughs> what's happening here. Um, Mildred Persinger made a series of critical decisions that would have enduring consequences. First, she opened up the NGO Tribune from consultative status NGOs to anyone who registered for the conference, for the Tribune. Second, she spent astonishing amounts of time and energy raising funds and developing contacts to maximize participation from what was then called the third world. And finally, several days into the Tribune, she eliminated registration entirely and opened the forums up to anybody who wanted to participate. As the New York Times reported, the NGO Tribune became, quote, the scene of much shouting, scheming, plotting, and general hell raising. The, several reporters said that's where the action is. It's the, everything interesting was happening at the, at the NGO Tribune. Uh, langu the language issues of the NGO Tribune were legion. Organizers described having to learn UNEs as they, as they navigated UN protocols. And on the most practical level, the Tribune had resources to provide translation only among French, Spanish, and English, and only during the formal parts of the program. The informal gatherings that organizers encouraged and facilitated generally remained segregated by language. The Ford Foundation sponsored the publication of an IWI newspaper, Shilinen, which carried coverage in Spanish and English, and very occasionally in French, of events at both the NGO Tribune and the Intergovernmental Conference. Interestingly, however, even articles covering the same material differed markedly in tone and emphasis, effectively creating divergent common senses in multiple publics, particularly at the NGO Tribune. <coughs> The very question of how language might form part of the women's, of women's emancipation also generated uh, mutual confusion. The Universal Esperanto Association complained, uh, proclaimed that by the 21st century, the imposition of an international language would bring about peace, love, and understanding. Oh, I'm gonna close that. 
Uh, they actually use that phrase, peace, love, and understanding. We can talk about that later. Anglophone women formed a committee on non-sexist language, uh, calling for non-sexist language, a demand that made no sense to the vast majority of women who, who spoke grammatically gendered languages. And many participants questioned uh, whether some language simply distracted from what they saw as the more pressing issues of women's liberation. Up at the official conference, delegates deliberated over what factors should be enumerated in the list of obstacles to women's emancipation. In the end, Zionism and apartheid were included, but sexism was rejected as a, quote, nasty North American neologism. Yeah, so Zionism was in, sexism was out. <laughs> it was, yeah. Uh, IWY is most often remembered for an apocryphal uh, encounter between Betty Friedan and the Bolivian tin miner's wife, Domitila Barrios de Chungara. Although this purported confrontation never occurred, the retrospective distillation of the conference into the impossibility that these two women, first world liberal and white on the one hand, and third world Marxist and non-white on the other, would make common cause of the NGO Tribune has served as a synecdoche for the failures of transnational feminisms in the last quarter of the 20th century. Due to Ferdinand's prominent role in Mexico City and the quality and accessibility of her personal archive, the Anglophone literature on the IWY events centers most often on either celebrating or vilifying her. The discussions recently about Hillary Rodham Clinton have been really reminded me of the discussions that we've had about Betty Friedan in their uh, dyadic nature. Um, after all, Friedan and other now leaders had arrogated to themselves the authority to describe the boundaries of legitimate feminism, drawing the ire of many Tribune participants. In one of the most fraught moments of the conference, Ferdinand drew scathing criticism for leading an effort to represent the NGO Tribune to the government conference, submitting, uh, submitting a set of amendments to the IWY World Plan of Action. In addition to the fact that Tribune organizers had specifically instructed participants not to speak on behalf of the Tribune, the proposed amendments were made available only in English, uh, were made available only in English. The U.S. Embassy's effort to rectify the situation only backfired when copies appeared in Spanish carrying the annotation printed courtesy of the American Embassy. So all the conspiracy theories that this was a CIA operation were confirmed when people saw this, this translated copy from the U.S. Embassy. Women who challenged the self-deputized feminist authority to speak for the NGO Tribune were themselves dubbed disruptors and chastised for preventing the much-touted unity that feminists sought. Amid this kerfuffle, feminist leaders assembled a so-called unity panel in hopes of putting aside policy debates and focus on what they considered properly in the domain of women's issues, or at least to demonstrate that for the duration of one press conference, a diverse group of women could show solidarity. This was where the real confrontation with Domitila, as she was known, took place, not with Betty Friedan, but rather with the Mexican feminist Esperanza Brito de Martí. It certainly is an interesting failure of translation that, that Esperanza Brito is consistently recast as Betty Friedan. Although I should say about this confrontation, when Latin Americans talk about it, they often say, I can't remember if it was Betty Friedan or Gloria Steinem, because it's sort of, they all like, and uh, when US feminists talk about it, they can never remember Domatila's name, so is that. But, but this is actually the confrontation that happened. Uh, it certainly uh, is interesting, blah, blah, blah. Okay, uh, at the unity panel, Domitila stepped up to the microphone to remind them that solidarity and unity required drawing boundaries that left some people on the outside looking in. She described women on her housewife's committee worrying over how to feed their children, watching their husbands cough up blood after contracting silicosis, and fretting over where they would live if their husbands got any sicker or died, leaving them 90 days to vacate drafty company-supplied shacks. What can you possibly understand about all that? She later recalled asking the well-heeled crowd of several thousand 
For you, the solution is fighting with men, and that's it. For us, it isn't that way. That isn't the basic solution. In many instances, the, pro the problems of conceptual translation led to misinterpretation. U.S. women, such as Betty Friedan and Tribune organizer Mildred Persinger, assumed that Domitila's explicitly maternalist feminism implied docility. Persinger described her later as having, quote, started a project among women to bake a special kind of biscuit that is very popular in Latin America and to sell them to raise money for the local school. But Barrios de Chungada's maternalist activism had involved hunger strikes and hostage taking and long stretches in prison getting beaten to a pulp even when eight months pregnant. It involved intense debates over Maoism and Marxism. It involved going on strike to show her husband the value of her uncommodified labor. But it involved very little biscuit making and definitely no bake sales. <laughs> she remained completely illegible to most IWI participants. Much as US feminists could not square maternalism with women's liberation, third world participants conflated rights claims for lesbian and sex workers, two issues that themselves were always collapsed, lesbians and sex workers, with US imperialism and the imposition of Western values. Feminism more broadly was reduced to Valerie Solanas' scum manifesto, which the Mexican press took to be the mission statement of an actually existing group. Uh, for those of you who don't know US feminism, this is not, the, scum is not a real thing. The scum manifesto is like a, it's a, uh, Valerie Solanas describes it as a literary device, but um, the Society for Cutting Up Men. Uh, the Mexican press thought that it was a real thing. Uh, although Flo Kennedy embodied a subject conjured later by decolonial feminists, the anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, pro-sex feminist, she also remained illegible to third world participants. And one could not, uh, establish that one could not simultaneously be anti-imperialist and pro-sex. When, when an Australian, Australian participant, Lori Bevington, stood up at the NGO Tribune and identified herself as a lesbian feminist, scores of leftist participants walked out in protest. Critics, including Domitila Barrios de Chungara, consistently set up a zero-sum relationship between rights for lesbians and sex workers on the one hand and combating human rights abuses on the other. And they actually, um, at one point, there were these two competing demonstrations, one for, um, that was for abortion rights and childcare and things that was in one part of the city, and then another one that was in opposition to the Pinochet regime and uh, US involvement in Vietnam in a different part of the city. So you, you literally had to choose one or the other. Um, IWI staged an unprecedented encounter, therefore, uh, uh, among a radically diverse array of participants, overwhelmingly women, who brought with them experiences and conceptions of cultural change and social justice that far exceeded what could be captured in the fictional dyad invoked by Ferdan, the Ferdinand Barrios de Chungara conflict. Indeed, the intense and often combustible interactions that took place at the Intergovernmental Conference and more frequently the NGO Tribune highlight the extent to which, as the sociologist Boaventura de Sousa Santos explains in reference to the World Social Forum, such gatherings demand a, quote, wide exercise in translation to expand reciprocal intelligibility without destroying the identity of the partners of translation. Such spaces form what literary scholar Mary Louise Pratt describes as a contact zone where disparate cultures meet, clash, and grapple with each other in highly asymmetrical relations of domination and subordination. In other words, the efforts to foster coherence and solidarity through, through translation never escape the power relations within which they emerge. Efforts of cultural and political translation in such circumstances are always mistranslations, creating imperfect equivalences, fixing meanings that are fluid and reflecting anticipated understandings. As Santos explains, the translations of the World Social Forum, much like at International Women's Year, 
involve the decoding and recoding of knowledges and actions as much as of discourses, and the translations reflect emotions and dynamics particular to a given context. The unpredictability that has made for the most significant changes at both IWI and the World Social Forum have always exceeded the capacities of translation, but reveals a liminal space that, that uh, a liminal space between that resists fixing, what the anthropologist Diane Nelson dubs fluidarity in lieu of solidarity, but nonetheless opens the, the most uh, opens the most generative trans, trans excuse me opens the most generative transnational exchanges. The most enduring legacies of IWI, the interrogation of development metrics, a wholesale reimagination of feminism to decenter Western experiences, and the formation that uh, younger scholars are writing about now of transnational networks such as Dawn and the Latin American feminist encounters all emerge not from moments of unity, much less the heavily scripted meetings among instructed delegations, but rather from moments when linguistic and conceptual translation errors fostered new perspectives and understandings. Final um, paper in, on this panel will be uh, Emma London speaking on adapting feminism, Swedish and South African political activists' use of second wave vocabulary, 1968 to 1994. Thank you. Um, when second wave feminists made headlines in many parts of the world in the 1970s, women uh, within many male dominated left wing parties were eager to dismiss this non parliamentary activism as only beneficial to a small group of privileged middle class women. Sticking to official party lines, these party activists instead claim that women's liberation would be granted as the result of greater societal shifts, um, the liberation of a country and or the working class. Feminism was a political ideology that competed with nationalism, socialism, democracy and decolonization. It was a threat to party unity and progress. And in this paper, I will look at the way in which um, women in the Swedish Social Democratic Party, which I'm going to be calling SAP from now on, and the African National Congress of South Africa, which is much better known as the ANC, um, how they dealt with feminism as a term, philosophy, and method in the late 20th century. And the aim is to show how and why party women changed their attitudes and some of the impact this has had on their organizations and countries. Um, a comparison between SAP and the ANC or Sweden and South Africa is not as far-fetched as it might first seem. Um, for many decades in the 20th century, Swedish politicians saw solidarity as a duty. Um, a small state without overt affiliations or at least official affiliations to the US or USSR, Sweden offered support to other small states in the hope that this would allow them to break the chains of colonialism without turning to either side in the bipolar community international community. And one of the beneficiaries of this active solidarity policy was the ANC. In 1973, a SAP government under the now legendary Prime Minister Olof Palme launched a taxpayer-funded direct aid program that helped fund the ANC until 1994. So from 1973 to 94, Sweden sent roughly about 90 million pounds the ANC's way. Um, and that's taxpayer money, right? Uh, this South African-Swedish collaboration formed the backbone of my doctoral thesis, which established how the quest for gender equality impacted the lives of women in, in SAP and the ANC from 1960 to 1994. And recreating local and international discussions about women's liberation, I found that these increasingly bound women's activists together across the world, um, and the thesis challenged assumptions 
um, about women's place and agency within SAP, the ANC and the anti-apartheid movement, while also revealing why and how transnational activities became an important tool for several generations of female politicians and political activists. And I'm now trying to delve deeper into this intellectual part, or the intellectual part of this exchange, using SAP and ANC women, as well as women from other parties and organisations and countries, as a means to study the globalisation of politics in the 20th century. So I'm interested in the movement of people and ideas across borders, of finding out how ideological trends spread across the world, and how ideas are communicated, and how this impacts local political cultures. And feminism, as I'm sure you can understand, is proving to be quite an excellent case study for it. Um, but the mo most obvious difference between SAP and the ANC is that SAP only spent nine years in opposition from 1932 until the end of the 20th century. Um, while the ANC was banned by the apartheid regime in the aftermath of the Sharpeville ma massacre in 1960, forced underground and into combat. Um, it could only resurface in 1990 as the apartheid state crumbles. It has 30 years of this kind of exile, um, precarious existence. So one party is near hegemonic, the other one is waging a war for national liberation. But nevertheless, there are some very striking similarities between the two. In both SAP and the ANC, women remained a minority throughout the 20th century. The patriarchal tendencies and the structural injustices within the parties meant that women's, uh, women mobilized in single gender, uh, women's only groups, in order to amplify their voices. Uh, but this wasn't straightforward in itself. Successful mobilisation on topics that mattered to the party as a whole left women's activists within these subsidiary party groups open to accusations that they were fifth columnists. And the American uh, political scientist Karen Beckwith has called this the feminist liberation movement's double militancy, pointing out that women who work within a group to advance their own cause and alongside men to gain a more general liberation um, cause inter-organisational tension. So, in short, women's activists within male-dominated parties are held back by other members who question their trustworthiness and priorities. And this has very much been the case within SAP and the ANC. Um, however, women within SAP and the ANC have also been very critical of feminism, seeing it as a domain of privileged bourgeois women with nothing better to do, and as a westernised and often racist discussion with little relevance to non-white women. Uh, for SAP, second wave feminism was a particular challenge as non-parliamentary feminists mobilised in opposition to SAP, the SAP gov government in which they tried to serve. So protests organised by the small but very visible and influential Group 8, uh, for example, accused SAP of hiding for, from calls for free abortion, of not going far enough to ensure women's equality in public and private life, and of being too slow in encouraging childcare centres and preschools. So SAP women who were very active within the party at the time have, in conversations with me, confirmed that they had been drawn to party politics because of their frustration with the lack of gender equality in Sweden. So they were politicised by the same issues that Group 8 sought to bring to the public's and politicians' attentions. SAP women wanted better childcare, an end to joint taxation that meant that married couples' earnings were taxed together, in effect penalising two income earners. Um, and they also wanted to improve... Uh, workplace equality, including in their own political structures. But the difference between the, these groups of women was that while second wave feminists saw themselves as um, a pressure group and a lobby, SAP women were or attempted to become legislators. Um, and there were two ways in which they could do this. As party women, 
individuals climbing to the top of the hierarchy through involvement in mixed gender subsidiary groups, so we're talking about the youth party or the student organisations or trade unions, or as a women's lobby in the women's only organisation, SSKF. And party women proved much more effective. SSKF was subjected to a very sort of gendered sniggering. The organisation was seen as old-fashioned and irrelevant, despite the fact that on at least two occasions it's changed uh, South and therefore Sweden's policies quite remarkably. In the 1950s, it made sure that Sweden rejected the commissioning of its own nuclear weapons, which had been a hot topic. Uh, and in 1976, it forced a debate on parental leave in Parliament against the wishes of the SAP leaders. Um, though they often talked about discrimination and the need for equality between the sexes, SAP women didn't automatically self-identify as feminists in this era. In public, they framed gender equality as an inevitable step uh, in the removal of shackles from all the narrow sweets life. So the next step, basically, rather that than a gender revolution. But behind the scenes, they worked hard to um, further the collective cause of women within the party using feminist-inspired strategies. They secured nominations to leadership positions by organizing women, sometimes behind the backs of, of local party leaders. And they ensured that women who found themselves in position of powers helped open doors to others. Over the next couple of decades, women moved up the ranks within the party, slowly but surely, and senior party positions then translated into cabinet positions, and gender equality became an increasingly important legislative topic. But despite their direct influence on Swedish law, SAP women remain largely invisible in the public memory of 1970s feminism and gender reform in Sweden. So, Left-wing Swedish feminists talked about the double oppression women faced, discrimination on account of their gender and as workers. But for women in the ANC, that was not enough. They existed in a world where a government led by a small white minority sought to turn the black majority population into a working class labor reserve and in which black women suffered particular oppression because of a patriarchal allegiance between South African men of all ethnicities. And this saw the state and leaders of African, rural African communities, for example, collaborate to control the black movement's physical move movements. Um, at the time that the ANC was banned and forced on the ground by the apartheid regime in 1960, women within the organization had a long uh, history of building and staging successful protest movements behind them. In fact, women had been pioneering and often controversial organizers, for example, in 1956, when they staged a mass march on the seat of the government in Pretoria. Despite, or perhaps because of this, leading women were sidelined by a male-dominated leadership and a political culture in which male views were um, dominated or sort of seen as normative and women's views represented a, a special minority interest. And this continued as the struggle for national liberation grew in intensity in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The ANC became an exile led movement in 1960, based first in Tanzania and later in Zambia, but with members and officers across the world. Um, and sexism was in exile was rife. And while leading ANC women organized in the ANC women's section to mobilize women as a political, a particular political caucus, they were also designated the social workers of the movement, fundraising for ANC refugees, sorting out childcare for members of the ANC's armed forces, and relentlessly petitioning the leadership for adequate funds to do so. So a few women, Ruth Monpati and Florence Moposo, among them, gained access to higher office and positions of influence in the organization during these decades. 
but the vast majority of ANC women were seen as wives and as the supporters and social workers of the movement rather than as radical and intelligent political mobilizers. And this was the case in both exile and home. And this has ensured that women's contributions are still often overlooked when ANC and anti-apartheid histories are written. Like SAP women, ANC women were for a long time very skeptical about the use of feminism or didn't even really want to add the uh, word feminist to their vocabulary. Second wave feminism's insistence on challenging nuclear family life left many of them cold. And this goes back a little bit to Jocelyn's paper earlier. ANC women have a long and powerful history of rallying as mothers. Um, as Charles Walker has pointed out, these women didn't see how their self-identification as mothers could possibly have anything to do with their involvement in political protest. And the low status of black mothers in the eyes of the South African authorities <coughs> also meant that women found surprisingly large spaces for their political activities. And this is what allowed the ANC to survive underground within South Africa. So women are really fundamental to the history of the ANC, but not visible at all. Um, in the long term, defense of radical motherhood became a part of the ANC's rhetoric and propaganda as black women were identified as the mothers of the revolution and as militant protectors of their communities. But despite this, these issues with feminism, in exile, ANC women began infusing their language and working practices with feminism in the early 1970s. And after a decade of underfunding and not being listened to by the male-dominated leadership, the ANC Women's Secretariat issued a general report in 1972-73 sent to ANC women's groups around the world that clearly showed the influence of these contemporary feminist debates. Um, the report's authors used triple oppression, a, coin, a term coined by Marxist feminist uh, Claudia Jones to describe black women's particular subjugation on account of their gender, class, and ethnicity. And this they did for the very first time in 1972-3. They also stated that the struggle is to rid women of backward psychological outlooks. This is the struggle of all revolutionaries, men and women alike. The work should not be left until after we have gained our national liberation. Now is the time. Um, and this is an example of how, despite their great initial reluctance to define themselves as feminist, ANC women adopted and adapted feminist theory and language over the course of the 70s and 80s. So two things in particular inform this change. Um, the continued international mobilization of women's activists and the increased use of feminist theory in academic and political practice. And one of the key catalysts for the feminist awakening within the, the ANC was the UN World Conference. Uh, for women in Mexico City in 1975 and the UN decade for women that followed because even though the ANC wasn't officially represented in Mexico City the conference had a direct impact on uh, the ANC women's fundraising activities so the decade of women put governments NGOs and UN agencies under pressure to assist women's groups and projects releasing funds that had previously been inaccessible to them so South African women were also get increasingly giving opportunities to partake in international debates and further spread awareness of their particular subjugation in the apartheid state so on many occasions they were invited by other women to give talks about women's issues in South Africa Feminist academic research also endowed ANC and SAP women's activists with new working methods. So in the mid-1980s, um, a political scientist who's Swedish and Danish, Drew Dollarup, made use of critical mass theory to argue that at least 30% of all members in political structures need to be women in order for them to have 
um, to, to be able to influence policy making. And the Socialist International, which is an umbrella organization for social democratic parties around the world, became the venue in which SAP women pushed for the introduction of these quotas, using research by Dollarup and others to back their claims. In 1986, the Socialist International Congress passed a motion endorsing quotas in the selection for prospective parliamentarians, and soon the ANC Congress did the same. ANC women immediately saw the usefulness of uh, the sort of international congress uh, quota movement, basically. Um, in 1990, the ANC was unbound and negotiations commenced between the ANC, the apartheid government and other political organisations in an attempt to secure a peaceful transition to majority-style democracy. The initial exclusion of women from negotiating delegations led women's activists to organize in cross-party mass mobilization style uh, for women's rights to ensure that South African women were properly represented in the soon-to-be-born democracy. And emboldened by the success and visibility of this campaigning, ANC women called for 30% of the seats to be reserved uh, for women ahead of their 1994 election. So the ANC leadership heeded their call, realizing now that the quotas was a way to ensure that the new South Africa fulfilled a promise that the ANC had made in the 1950s, that it would lead the country into becoming a non-racist and non-sexist democracy. Um, the early 1990s was a time, I'm concluding now, <laughs> was a time in which many political parties around the world made great progress in their work towards gender equality. And this was the result of the remarkable strength of party and parliamentary feminists who organized international and transnational communities as lobby groups to push equal gender representation up on the political agenda. So when the ANC won its electoral landslide in 1994, the quotas ensured that 25% of South Africa's MPs were women, and that's up from just 2.8% 10 years earlier. Um, and I think it's better than the UK has today, still. Um, when SAP won the 1994 elections in Sweden, they ousted a conservative-led coalition and returned to power with the first ever gender equal cabinet. So half of the cabinet posts were given to women. Um, and being a feminist now was no longer seen as incompatible with the core aims of SAP and the ANC. It had become part of the party's electoral winning strategies and self-perception. So women's radicalism was co-opted and submerged into party policy and history, often leaving few traces of their struggles to get there. So earlier heckles were replaced by silence, and the struggle for gender equality, as I'm sure you know, in particular maybe publicly known about South Africa, but less so about Sweden, nevertheless still true, gender equality is nowhere near a complete project in either of those two countries. So something to think about. Um, thank you very much to all three speakers for some very thought-provoking um, and fascinating uh, presentations. So what we're going to do now, I realize I misspoke before um, when I said 45 minutes for discussion. We have 25 minutes for discussion. <laughs> so a bit less time, but nonetheless. Um, what I'll do is I'm going to sort of open frame uh, the discussion with a few comments and questions of uh, my own, and then we will throw it open uh, to the audience for more questions. And what we might do is I'm going to ask some questions, but before you answer them, we might go to the audience just so that it's sort of to keep the pace, and then and then uh, we'll collect a few questions, come back, and then you can um, answer them, some of them together. Um, so. 
here we had three uh, wonderful papers um, that gave us an opportunity to kind of think through uh, the sort of traditional narratives we have of the development of Cold War internationalism um, uh, through the frame of transnational women's organizing, um, and particularly these questions of translation and mistranslation in the context of, um, of the sort of production of what is presented as a shared project on the basis of uh, these women's sort of shared gender, but which we see nonetheless is um, a project riven with issues of uh, misunderstanding, conflict, tension, which as Jocelyn pointed out is actually something that far from being uh, in a sense of problem is arguably perhaps generative uh, in all sorts of ways of new kinds of transnational feminist um, politics in this time period. Um, now I'm going to, ha I have some sort of uh, two general questions that are to everyone and then sort of one question uh, more specific to each paper. Um, but, uh, in terms of sort of my more general questions, all three of the papers um, I felt brought up this complicated question of the relationship between the domestic sphere, sort of, or we could say the domestic scale and the international scale uh, in uh, political organizing, and specifically in these cases, uh, you know, in, in women's slash feminist um, organizing. And, um, and some of them quite explicitly talked about this, this issue of uh, the sort of what happened on the international stage, uh, sort of what it's brought back to the domestic to the domestic context, then reframing the kinds of political discussions that are going on there. But I was wondering if um, if you could, uh, each of you could sort of state a bit more explicitly, um, sort of what you see as the relationship between. Um, the domestic and the international in the particular case of transnational uh, women's organizing. So for example, is there an argument that could be made um, that some of these women turned to the international sphere of a sort of political action because they saw politics as something that was closed off to them, uh, possibly back home? So this is something, an argument that's been made a lot about some sort of contemporary uh, sort of international women's NGOs that um, when certain kinds of political opportunities are closed off in domestic contexts, they somehow you know, magically appear on the international stage as uh, you know, urgent uh, problems, actually because people have made that, that sort of strategic decision. So I was wondering how that plays into each of your papers. And the second general question I had was about embedded, the embeddedness of, um, of these uh, presentations in a particular time, primarily the 60s and the 70s. And then, of course, um, Emma's paper took us into also the 80s and the early 90s. Um, and I was wondering if, if, if you had thoughts on what it is about, maybe especially, what is this particularly a 60s and 70s thing about the, the kinds of transnational feminist organizing that we're seeing here. Um, I say this as someone who works on kind of what could be called transnational feminist or women's organizing in an earlier period, um, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And of course, so much of what you talk about is incredibly familiar from looking at that period, but then there are also things that are, are contrasting and new. So I'm just sort of wondering about what you see as time specific in terms of this kind of mid post-war um, uh, period in, in the kinds of stories that you're telling. Um, moving to um, a, a specific question um, to Jocelyn, I thought your paper did a really wonderful um, job of highlighting to us this very incredibly contested question of who gets to define what feminism is um, and whether, whether it's a, something that is defined sort of from within or from the outside. This idea that um, you know, feminism is white, liberal and bourgeois you know, automatically or is it something that people from, you know, who identify themselves as being thin can argue, no, it's actually not, it's something else. Um, I was wondering, sort of, you know, 
a, a bit of a carry-on from this question about the embeddedness of your story within a particular moment in time, um, where you see this moment in time in the sort of longer, I guess, history of um, the evolution of international women's organizing, and especially what some um, scholars have identified as a shift from kind of economic explanations of women's oppression on the international stage to explanations that have emphasized instead kind of violence as a category writ large that is the, the, the explanation for all women's oppression, sexual violence and, and other forms of violence. So the shift that we see from an emphasis on, um, you know, particularly uh, um, uh, you know, help for and all the, the, the lifting up of third world women and the, the, the need for economic um, and structural changes as a, ways to, as a way to um, solve women's uh, inequality to an emphasis that we see in the 90s on, um, you know, rape as a weapon of war, um, trafficking in women, that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if, you know, this particular moment in 1975, you see anything happening in terms of that, that shift from the economic, language of economic oppression to language of violence. To Christine, um, I think you, you did a great job of, of demonstrating um, the power of language, despite saying at the beginning you weren't going to talk so explicitly about language. Nonetheless, I thought that the paper did a really good job of showing how um, you know, language, sort of particular languages that seem to be actually obfuscating uh, the sources of inequality can nonetheless give people the words to then try and combat that inequality. Um, so this is something that teaching Soviet history, I always try and emphasize to my students when we t talk about sort of gender and the women's question in the 20s and the 30s, and they'll do the reading and say, oh, you know, all of this language of ending women's oppression was just this cynical ploy by the regime uh, to, to sort of claim a progressive nature that they didn't have, which is sort of true, but I always sort of try and push them to think, well, is there any way in which this might have provided a language that some women could have used to make certain claims to the state? Which is always a leading question because I kind of think that it did. <laughs> um, um, and I think that you, it, you did a great job of showing how that could happen on the international scale as well. Um, I was really fascinated by this idea that uh, that these kind of exchange of personal information that we see in the letters that you discussed is something that's actually central to Soviet conceptions of foreign relations in this period more broadly from sort of 57. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, um, about how, uh, and this is always sort of a question that comes out, I guess, in sort of Soviet discussions, how much you see these women's um, turn to that kind of personal, intimate language as being a kind of natural progression of their own sort of development as activists, or something that's kind of imposed in some way by some kind of external, not sort of literal, but sort of something that they see as something they're required to do, essentially. Do they see this as something that's part of their job to sort of foster these uh, personal relationships with women abroad, or do you see it as something that's, that's much more coming from within their own kind of personal uh, development? And then finally, um, for Emma, um, I think you did a great job of raising, again, this question of who gets to define what feminism is. Um, and I was particularly interested that you were talking so explicitly about, um, you know, about parliamentarian women, about you know, ministers and um, members of parliament and women who are members of explicit um, political parties. And that, to me, raised a question of where we position this kind of transnational feminist organizing as either within or outside the state, um, and, whether, and to what extent that matters and when it might matter. 
Um, you know, we of course, uh, you know, from Jocelyn's very first paper, we had this whole idea of the, the NGO um, as the kind of crux of, um, or the collection of NGOs as the kind of crux of transnational women's organizing, so, you know, explicitly non-governmental organizations. And in your case, especially with the Swedish women, we had instead women who were working through government, you know, government and through sort of recognized political parties, and that's where their sort of um, international political action is, is taking place. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about when and how it matters. Um, that women identify with certain kinds of what we might term state agendas and other times when they are explicitly uh, identifying as non-state or oppositional, as we see so clearly in the case of the ANC women uh, before 1994. Um, so those are my questions, uh, but before you answer them, I will throw it open to see if we can collect some more questions. Hi, um, thanks very much for your really interesting papers. I have two questions. One is for Jocelyn, this is a question that's going to sound sort of combative, but I don't mean it exactly in that sense. I'm just giving you a defanging myself from the beginning. There's a way in which I heard the, um, your discussion of translation and women not understanding women and women not having you know, languages with which to speak to one another. That itself sounded to me very gender, in the sense that if we were talking about male activists, we might just say they didn't agree, right? That they just they had different political positions. They were um, uh, reasoned political positions that were opposing, right? They had different interpretations about what should be done um, politically in their countries and what should be done internationally. And I was wondering if your book project that this comes from itself uses language of translation, this kind of misunderstanding, this communication, or if that's something that came to you through this through this particular form, and if you could just develop that idea a little bit. Because lurking behind it is an idea, it seems to me, that women should understand each other, <laughs> and that if they had a language that they would understand each other. Mm -hmm. When in fact, that itself is potentially a very gendered concept, I, I, I suggest. Right? Just a thought, because as I said, it sounds a bit combative, I don't mean exactly that way, it's sort of opening up that problem. Mm -hmm. And then for Christine, I wanted to ask about language, um, interesting one language that you actually saw in the letters in the archives in, in the Russian language, and I confirmed with a native speaker here, that Russian doesn't have a word for sisterhood, does it? So, <laughs> no, I so, 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 what are, so what are they, what are they saying, right? How are they structuring the language of what we would call sisterhood? So, you know, this, you know, seminal phrase, sorry for the term, seminal phrase from second wave feminism is sisterhood is powerful, right? It's untranslatable into Russian. It doesn't make sense. So, I know they're not feminists in that sense, and yet the way you're talking about their language, they're using language of, of some kind of woman-to-woman -woman connection thing. And how is that coming across? Now, my language of uh, experience of Russian is that would come across through um, discussions of motherhood, right? That, that would be the most powerful way, the most common way I would think that those would be mobilized. But for women who weren't mothers and were not using the language of motherhood and family, how do they talk about their womanness, their gender? I was going to jump on uh, this last question as well to Christine um, because I was thinking actually kind of with Jocelyn's invitation to think about the images as they're moving around. I'm wondering about um, Soviet woman and also its relationship to journals, specifically something like Rabotnitsa that would have been circulating and had been circulating for a long time um, for its internal audience, possibly also providing exactly that kind of language. 
language, possibly visual, possibly textual. And if it does have any direct relationship to the kinds of imaging that's happening in Soviet women for this audience abroad, um, and whether or not the internal circulation in something like Rabotica, um speaks to the um, anti-colonial or decolonializing discourse that you identify in Soviet women. Yeah, um, sorry that I just came in. I came from the airport, so I apologize for any of my questions or things I picked up before. But I was inspired by, by that question to think about the, the backlash of concepts like gender. So in, in Polish, the, there's a word, quetch, which means sex, as in female sex. But gender as a word is gender, which comes from uh, the English language and was voted word of the year in Polish in 2015. But when, uh, when the right-wing government uh, peace came to power, part of what they propagated was a backlash against the very idea of gender that is something that is imposed by the West and that has to be pushed back against. So this is something particularly that's anti-Catholic. So I'm wondering if you see the seedbeds within all of your stories which are quite celebratory in their, in their tone of this backlash that, that has at least come in, in Eastern Europe over the last couple of years through the very language that they feel has been imposed, in this case, by places like the European Union. Great, well let's um, open it to the speakers to respond to each of those questions and then if we have time we'll go back for another round of, of questions. Okay, I'll move quickly because I think the questions are great. Um, uh, relationship scale, so um, you know, no place is more nationalistic than the UN of all places. Like it's, we really see these pronounced, um, and, and the, the US feminists were so appallingly chauvinistic in their whole demeanor. So there, there's a certain amount of nationalism there, but but particularly from um, women who have participated in, in struggles for decolonization, um, you really hear this discourse of, you know, we took up arms, we fought alongside these men, and then we got sent back to the kitchen. And um, they actually, you know, there's this interesting arc about NGOs and, and the kind of, kind of critique of NGOization and professionalization. I think it's tapered off a little bit now, but, but this moment in the, the mid-70s is that kind of high utopianism for NGOs, and where a lot of these women are requesting that things be done through NGOs to circumvent what they are increasingly seeing as corrupt governments or, or governments that, I mean, it's sort of in the way that you're talking about, really aren't listening to them at all. So, so that uh, I definitely see. Um, is this embedded? It's, I think that the, the, the IWI story is not only is it embedded in the 70s, it's like weirdly embedded in this very particular moment of the mid-1970s, which is to say the UN has just passed the, the new international economic order language, the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. Um, Luis Echeverria, who's the president of Mexico, is openly jockeying to succeed Kurt Waldheim as Secretary General sort of one war criminal to another or something like that. Um, and so there's this, there's this kind of particularity of it. Um, I think that it's also, there's a sense in, in the mid-70s that of course ends with Thatcher in a lot of ways, that geopolitically things are about to radically change, right? That, that truly, you know, the, that these non-aligned countries have taken over the UN and there's this, the possibility of this new international economic order and that things are really going to change. And so there's this, it's, this is a really it's it's a it's a it's a really particular time I think that that um, forms in terms of where it fits into the larger development of transnational women's activism um, I think you see certain uh, strains that have come from earlier and and they're part of why I'm really excited about Emma's new project about what happens next is that I think that we need to follow much more closely these 
um, particularly the, the uh, so Dawn Development Alternative for Women for a New Era is that what it uh, is insists that it be all third world based women right you can't uh, and and um, Debbie Jane who's really the major founder of that says you know you can't be you know reading the Times of London and able to like open your tap and get water and really understand what you know no matter where you grew up or went to school and really understand what it means so to live in the third world. So there's a way in which through those organizations, economic issues persist longer, I think, as a central organizing um, factor. I will say in Latin America in particular, um, violence has emerged, not so much things like rape as a weapon of war or the, the female circumstances and stuff, but um, but you know all of the narco violence and domestic violence and, and has really loomed large. So the, the work stoppages and things that you've seen in the past few years have all been centered on um, feminicide and that kind of thing. So it, it has been a turn toward um, violence. In in m most of these places, um, the violence gets. I mean, I would say in a really pronounced way in places like Mexico, gets linked to neoliberalism. That is to say, violence is is, is a symptom or a consequence perhaps of neoliberalism. It's not something that's seen as, as distinct. Um, the language of women understand, so, so um, it's not a combative question at all. That actually is exactly what the book is about. And there's this, there's this uh, I open with the, um, this amazing photo, uh, an AP photo. So the thing, the two things that everyone remembers is this Domitila Barrios that you got a Betty Friedan or possibly with Gloria Steinem thing story. And this image that is of two women, it's an AP photo of two women fighting over um, the microphone. And the AP, the, the, report, the AP report at the time is a woman, Peggy Simpson, who is a feminist and who is just horrified by this image. And they send out this, this goes all over the world, it's the most produced image of the conference. And it always runs with this headline, it's something like, global cat fight, right? Or, you know, and it's all about how women can't possibly get along. Um, I guess the, the and I, I have written about this a little bit before the book. There's I have a chapter in a a, a, um, a book whose title it's an edited volume whose title I'm it's escaping me, but it's a, a, a Dan Rogers edited it that that talks a bit about this question of translation. I will say that the call for papers though was really what made me think more about the issue of translation as a central trope. Um, but the the question of of Friction and dissensus is very much a central issue in the book, and um, and I think that the, the the disagreement to me the the people who are looking for agreement it, it doesn't divide along gender lines it divides along kind of first world third world lines right all of these first world women in particular U S women saying there's a central thing that we can think of as women's issues and we should all agree. It's a very liberal concept, right? This, that if we all share the same information, we'll come to agree, there's a, there's a truth we'll all arrive at. And all of these women from the federal saying, are you in your minds? Like, that's not how it works at all. Like, your, your reality is just utterly different from my reality. And so that's more where the, where the differences is more than a kind of gender. There is, there, there is a feminist critique at the moment saying, of, of the press coverage saying, you wouldn't see this as as conflict if it were men. You would just see right. You would see this as completely normal happenings of the UN. Um, but it's it, it's not simply gendered. It's gendered in a really particular geopolitical way. Um, and then the backlash against the gender agenda. Um, absolutely yes. It's happening um, really markedly in places like Brazil and Argentina. Sorry, I'll stop there. Questions. Mm -hmm. 
Christine. I'll start with Philippa's questions, um, beginning with the issue of the, the time period I'm looking at. So the 50s and 60s obviously were really early days for um, these liberation movements and for decolonization, particularly in the regions I'm looking at, Africa and uh, South Asia. So in a way, what the Soviet Women's Committee seemed to be doing at this point as they're sort of reinventing themselves after being this anti-fascist committee is um, reaching out to countries around the world, so obviously to the UK as well and the United States and socialist countries in Eastern Europe, but uh, significantly um, in, you know, in the material I'm looking at, looking at uh, non-aligned countries uh, noticing that there's this shift, this shift, all these winds of change, and they almost want to sort of get in at the ground up. So, in a lot of cases, the Soviet government still hasn't, you know, established formal di diplomatic relations with some of these countries, and so this seems to be happening through the Soviet Women's Committee, which, in that regard, is very much kind of a propagandistic organization, sort of maneuvering to have a place in these countries. And that speaks a little bit to the issue of the international versus the domestic. It seems these women start out in international activism, as I said, first um, beginning with their uh, founding of and co-founding of and participation in the Women's International Democratic Federation. They attend its meetings, uh, and then they become very involved in or interested in getting invitations to meetings uh, in other places. And of course, in what I'm looking at, places in Africa and South Asia where these women's conferences are um, being um, put together. So they want to either participate, find out about them. So there's all that information gathering, which is very much part of their official state socialist um, kind of agenda. But then in the correspondence, it seems that they then go to sort of the very personal domestic level, I guess you can say. And um, every now and then they will talk about uh, international issues. But as I said, they'll also sprinkle in their, into their letters comments on um, you know, what's going on in their lives, where they went to for vacation, how are you. Um, and this goes a little bit to Kristen's uh, question about sisterhood. No, there's no use of the term sisterhood or anything like that in the Russian versions and the translations into English that were typically sent to these women. Um, I'm using it very much conceptually. So even if women from these uh, developing countries said, dear sisters, Soviet women wouldn't use that term. Um, so then how is sisterhood defined? You said motherhood is one of those things, definitely. That's something that they share. Um, but if a person is not a mother, then they very much sort of um, speak in a tone or um, have conversations that are very much about caring, rights. Um, this is something that I saw as uh, prominent through second, secondary literature. Um, there's a woman, Margareta Jolly, who've, who's looked at uh, second wave feminist epistolary culture and how there's always this sort of sense of I care about you. Remember when you were in Moscow, you didn't have proper shoes, you were so cold. How are you now? Have you recovered? So there's kind of that caring, tell me about your education, your studies, in a sense wanting to find out are you okay? Um, can we send you something? They do use the the word equal equal rights, obviously, but you're right. Sisterhood is very much kind of my my take on it. It's not there. Just like gender is also not something that was used um, in the case of the Soviet Union and all of this. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, oh, Rabotnitsa. Um, 
it seems like around this time, if I remember correctly, because it's been a while since I've looked at it, similar themes were emerging just because there was an opening up of an interest uh, in the broader world, obviously during the thaw and during this era of peaceful coexistence. Uh, and I, I haven't read through this um, myself, but someone suggested that Aganyok, which is another of these Glossier magazines, also had a lot of references to these sorts of uh, themes in it. Um, so. Um, that's for the magazines. And as for the readership, I understand that Soviet uh, woman was read in the, the Russian version, Sovietskaya Zhenshina, among some women in the Soviet Union. However, any commentary I saw on that suggested sort of uh, more middle-class women in the Soviet Union. It's not the thing that Soviet women typically read. Um, so I think I got to some of these questions. Thank you for all of them. I appreciate it. Um, so I think the relationship between the domestic and the international scene that you were talking about is really interesting and important. So my doctoral thesis stretches from 1960 to 1994, so there are several generations within it. And it's very clear that for the Swedish women, the early generations of people who were born around the time of the First World War, if not a little bit earlier, for them, international um, organizations is basically the only way for them to, to be professional political activists. Mm -hmm. So you have, Sweden is quite pioneering, pioneering. It sends the first uh, female UN ambassador mm -hmm. uh, to New York. Um, but it's still, up until 1973, there are never more than two women serving in the cabinet at the same time. Um, and for a long time, there's only the one woman. So from the 1950s, there's one woman, the same woman, <laughs> for like 15 years. So she's constantly trying to get others to join her, but the prime minister doesn't really see the need because there is a woman in the cabinet. So, um, <laughs> you know, what else would they want to do apart from work on youth and family issues? Um, so they have to, you know, cultivate these foreign relationships basically and it's by doing so they kind of gain fame and they you know become quite strident they become experts a lot of them are appointed to various UN uh, committees I mean you might have heard of Alva Myrdal for example who is important in UNESCO um, and then the younger generation I quite like the discussion this morning was it about youth culture and I, they're, they're the ones that kind of come up through that so they're born at the time of the second world war um, and they are very much women of the 60s, they uh, have had, they benefit from social democratic Sweden, so they have much greater education, many of them have been to university, so they're really frustrated at the lack of space for them in Sweden, but they kind of take it in a completely different way. And they also obviously have a party leadership which is much younger than the earlier generation of women, so they kind of get appointed and then you know it's a sort of snowballing effect so for them they still use international activities but mostly because it's like this passionate thing I mean everyone thinks that they sold Vietnam and apartheid on their own more or less but it's you know it's it's what draws them into politics they feel really strongly and personally affected by uh, decolonization projects and stuff but they then use that international fame to gain greater positions of influence within their own party. Mm -hmm. So they become very famous, they get they become the spokespersons for these various topics and you know that helps them secure cabinet positions in the end. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, you know, the domestic and international sphere, they are revolving and evolving, but they're constantly kind of in communication with each other, one feeds the other and vice versa. Um, I should maybe skip to uh, the I think also the, when it comes to parliamentary women, 
whether it's you know whether you can be a feminist within the state organization i think that it's important it matters um when it comes to conflict so you have the women who are women's lobbyists and you have the women who are in the kind of not not organizing through the women's only organization mm -hmm. in more or less constant conflict mm -hmm. um so it creates a lot of organizational tension. It's not just men not agreeing with the women's only organization. It's quite a lot of women. And it's a lot of very, very famous, very well-known, very highly influential women who serve in very high office who take that view on the women's only organization. So it's, that's an interesting thing. And finally, to talk about the gender backlash, there's obviously quite a lot of gender backlash going on even in these countries. So, South Africa is the only country that I know in the world that actually enshrines gender equality in its constitution. Um, but gender violence is, you know, everywhere. There's, it's, it's inescapable that women are subjected to a particular kind of violence. Um, and there are many reasons for that, which maybe we don't have time to go into here, but there's everything from the civil war that South Africa experienced in the 80s uh, to these kind of patriarchal allegiances and, and you know, the, the fact that as you give people rights, some people feel that their rights are being taken away from them. In Sweden, the third biggest party, or sometimes in some uh, political sort of opinion polls, the, the second largest party is the Sweden Democrats, which is an anti-feminist party with its roots in the neo-Nazi movement of the 1990s. So it's it's not great. <laughs> uh, they talk about gender now, and we often have this idea that gender is, particularly in Sweden, that it's a very sort of sorted situation, and that you know everyone's a feminist. The prime ministers have, the male prime ministers have defined as feminists since you know the 90s. But there is a massive amount of conflict involved in the use of that word and of giving the, all of these rights and visibility to political women. Great. Well, on that note, let's thank very much the three speakers again.